This is a Federal News Network podcast. The COVID-19 pandemic stretched the healthcare community to the limits, underscoring the need to further enhance public health resources across the country. And to move towards that goal, AmeriCorps and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention have launched the new Public Health AmeriCorps to support the recruitment, training, and development of the next generation of public health leaders. I had the chance to speak with Michael Smith, CEO of AmeriCorps, to find out how this new facet of his agency will work. AmeriCorps is the federal agency for volunteering and service. We've been around for almost 30 years. Uh, Today, we have about 250,000 AmeriCorps members and senior volunteers uh, that are serving in 40,000 locations all across the country. We actually have more than 10,000 AmeriCorps members that are serving in the DMV. Uh, And so Public Health AmeriCorps is building on that great work. So chances are, if there's a challenge in a community, and there are people of goodwill doing something about it, AmeriCorps members are right there. And so Public Health AmeriCorps is a groundbreaking partnership with the Centers for Disease Control, a $400 million partnership, where we're trying to do two things. One, we want to make sure that we are moving more AmeriCorps members to deal with the urgent public health care issues, and we are then going to provide them with the skills, training, uh, credentialing that they need so that they become the next generation of public health workers. And what is the role in helping as things get semi back to normal, still not out of it, though, of the COVID-19 pandemic? Uh, we lost many people due to burnout and, you know, being sick overall from the healthcare workforce. What was, you know, the response been from PHA and how is it helping fill those gaps? You know, people ask me what happened to AmeriCorps during the pandemic, and I say, we were there. We never left. Uh, When teachers had to figure out how to go virtual, AmeriCorps members were right there with them. When hospitals had to figure out how to run testing and vaccination lines, AmeriCorps members were right there with them, helping them run those lines. Uh, When communities were setting up mutual aid networks and learning pods for students, AmeriCorps members were there too. And we actually touched more than 12 million people during the course of the pandemic. So we're excited to double down on that work because what we know is the pandemic exposed a lot of challenges that were already there and the disproportionate impact of deaths and and sickness uh, on communities of color, on low-income communities. And so Public Health AmeriCorps is going to make sure that we're tackling those issues, uh, not just for a year, not just for two years, but for the long term. And what role will it be playing in the actual recruitment process and the training of these new uh, health leaders that we're trying to get into the workforce now? So Public Health AmeriCorps members are AmeriCorps members. Uh, Anyone in the DMV who wants to become a Public Health AmeriCorps member can go to AmeriCorps.gov and sign up today. Uh, They get a living allowance. They get an education award, which they can use to pay down debt or or pay for college or post-secondary. And we're working in partnership with CDC to provide them with the training and credentialing so that they can become the next doctors, nurses, public health care leaders, CNAs. Uh, whatever it is that combines their skills, their talents uh, with the needs of the community. You mentioned the living allowance. So, yes, there is going to need to be some funds behind this. Um, How are these grants going to be distributed and uh, who's applying for them? So AmeriCorps grants about a billion dollars a year uh, all across the country. Uh, And we work through thousands of nonprofit organizations, state commissions and uh, city governments, actually. Uh, And so any nonprofit can apply. They can go to AmeriCorps.gov and and find out how they could become a partner. Uh, In the the area, we're actually working with nonprofits like Damien Ministries uh, that are going to be doing health and education, preventative care, and COVID-19 awareness and vaccination information. 
Well, we're working with Latin American Youth Center, actually one of our long-term AmeriCorps pro, uh, partners that's going to be doing HIV AIDS education and COVID-19 testing and education efforts all across the area. Uh, so if there's a nonprofit that wants to work with one of them or wants to start with us from scratch, they, they can do that. Yeah, I'm curious if you've seen an uptick in the volunteerism, you know, at AmeriCorps and, you know, you're obviously plugged into that community as well. Since the pandemic has been waning off or even at the height of the pandemic, I knew several that wanted to get involved. Um, what was your experience? You know, what's been great is we have found we've got some new data that's coming out soon. And I'll give you a sneak preview that's going to show that neighbors kept helping neighbors during the pandemic. Uh, we all know that it was harder to serve with nonprofits, which is why we are so excited about Public Health AmeriCorps, because nonprofits need us, schools need us, and this gives an opportunity for people to get the support and the resources that they need uh, to serve. Yeah, and so you've seen you know, an uptick in that. What areas um, have you seen more people want to get involved in? And I know, you know that I'm not going to make you <laughs> prove it with data or anything, but uh, is there a, a specific sector that people are more interested in? Is it the public health uh, arena or uh, is it just overall helping out in communities that are in need? You know, the great thing about AmeriCorps is we're not sitting here in our offices in the uh, Federal Center Southwest deciding what America needs. Uh, all across the country, what, you know, Prince George's County needs, what Prince William's County needs, uh, what Southeast D.C. needs. Those communities get to decide what they need, and AmeriCorps members get to vote with their feet. So our largest programs uh, that we have are in education. We're seeing a lot more interest in, in climate and, and, and green careers. Uh, and we are so excited about the incredible interest that we've seen in public health. Yeah. Have you ran uh, initiatives like this with other agencies or are those in the works by any chance? Or um, is this kind of a unique area just because there's such a need in, in uh, the healthcare field? You know, it's so funny. I, you know, I was just with uh, at the White House recently uh, for the United We Stand Summit with the Attorney General and with the Department of Interior officials and uh, National Endowment of the Humanities. And I say that AmeriCorps is actually the Swiss Army knife. Uh, we can we can do multiple things. So we've partnered with FEMA. We have FEMA Corps. We've partnered with the Department of uh, Interior on fighting wildfires. Uh, we've partnered with the U.S. Department of Agriculture on, on hunger programs. We've partnered with HUD on, on housing and homelessness. And so we have a long track record of, of partnering with agencies to, to get things done and use our unique skills of deploying the power of national service combined with the, the talents that the other agencies have that may be more issue focused. What about in the uh, private sector and nonprofit field overall? Um, can you give me just a, a update on how you're increasing your uh, presence there and working with large and maybe even small organizations? AmeriCorps is a great public-private partnership. That's why we were actually created as a government corporation uh, back during the Clinton administration, because the idea was we needed to make sure that our work could be sustained. And so we work with nonprofit partners, with philanthropic partners, with corporations on a very local level who match our grants, who provide wraparound benefits for our members, who help us advertise and recruit, uh, and sometimes working with corporations uh, to double down on issues that we both care about, such as uh, maybe bridging the digital divide uh, or, or doing work on hunger. Dr. King said anybody can be great because anybody can serve. So if you're 18 or 80 years old, uh, you can become an AmeriCorps member. You can become a public health AmeriCorps member. Uh, and if you're a nonprofit that needs the resources to get things done for your community, we've got resources for you. So please go to AmeriCorps.gov 
uh, and figure out how you can get involved today. Michael Smith is CEO of AmeriCorps. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology, and the section chief of office and policy for the FBI's deputy director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? Yeah, it's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there, um, I didn't. I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, you know. In retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem solving, all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of, involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style 
developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job. So he thought about explicitly was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances, um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour. And you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emerald Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that backseat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I re realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. 
Right. I, I totally agree and understand that. It isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, how do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. Is I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school, and I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down on the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay, and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry. Maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply.